Welcome to Illinois Family Spotlight, a conversation about faith, family, freedom, the state of Illinois, our nation, and conservative action. Here's David Smith and Monty Larrick. Thanks for making Illinois Family Spotlight part of your day. During this edition, Dr. Michael Brown encourages Christians to be the moral conscience of our society and to be culturally sensitive without compromise as he explains the role of Christians in the public square. Dr. Brown is the host of the daily, nationally syndicated radio show, The Line of Fire. Along with Jezebel's War with America, he's authored more than 30 thought-provoking books. Here are his remarks during the Illinois Family Institute's 2020 Worldview Conference at the Village Church of Barrington. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at some familiar verses. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says this in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. What Jesus is saying is that if we do not function as salt and light in the society, society does not have that consciousness. We, God's people, must be the moral conscience of the society. We who know the Lord must bring the standards of God and the life-giving ways of God to the world, otherwise the world will not know these things. And there are various meanings of salt and different usages of salt in the ancient world. You didn't have refrigeration, so salt was used, say, to help preserve meats and things like that. It was a preservative. And salt was also used for, for flavoring as we do it to this day. If you think of the church as, as being the salt, we are the moral preservative of the society. We are the conscience of the society. And Martin Luther King once said that the church must be reminded that it's not the master of the state or the servant of the state, but the conscience of the state. And when people ask about separation of church and state, which we understand has been turned upside down in the last generation plus, to me, I just give that simple answer. We are called to be the conscience of the state. And what Jesus says here, if the salt is no longer salty, it has no use. It's gonna be trampled under foot of men. And because in many ways, the church has lost its saltiness, lost its distinctive, lost its voice in the midst of the society, because that's been the case, we have been rendered irrelevant by the society. We are trampled underfoot. It's one thing to be persecuted for righteousness. It's another thing to be trampled underfoot as irrelevant. And that's what has largely happened. You know, many Christians have had the mistaken idea that if we want to win the world, we become like the world. No, if you want to win the world, you become like Jesus and you call the world to leave its worldly ways and follow him. Cultural sensitivity is one thing, compromise is something very, very different. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, quoting R.V. Tasker, said this, you are the salt of the earth. The point is that if Jesus' disciples 
are to act as a preservative in the world by conforming to kingdom norms if they are, quote, called to be a moral disinfectant in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing or non-existent, they can discharge this function only if they themselves retain their virtue. Sadly, rather than us changing the world, the world has changed us. And we must step back, renew our own devotion to the Lord, renew our own commitment to the Lord, and then as we ourselves are revived and strengthened, now we can shine like lights in dark places. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2, that in the midst of a corrupt and sinful generation, we shine like lights. What's written in Ephesians, the fifth chapter? Ephesians chapter 5. Paul brings up the subject of light. Here in Matthew 5, the context is especially doing good works. And it's interesting that the world expects Christians to do good, that the world expects Christians to be caring for the poor and helping the needy. The world expects the church to do that, and as we shine our lights and build reputation in a community, that community knows it. If you've been a church established in a city for many, many years and you've helped the poor and the needy and you have outreach that help folks struggling with drug addiction and and folks with marital problems and different issues, people in the community know that. And when you stand for righteousness, it's part of a, a holistic stand that you're taking. When you stand against the wrong trends of the society, the people in your community know it because you've lived it out as light in the midst of darkness. In other words, we're not just preaching don't do this or this is wrong. We're not just opposing this legislation. We're also doing good in our communities. That should be part of who we are. That's part of being light. But look at what what Paul writes in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, beginning in verse eight. He says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. So part of us being light is doing good works. Part of us being light is exposing darkness, and the world will always hate that. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. If you were of the world, then the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I've called you out of the world, therefore the world will hate you. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3 that all those who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus said in Matthew 10, if the master of the house is called Beelzebub, if Jesus himself is identified with Satan, he said how much more the members of the household. So we understand that shining light in dark places is not always popular. And that's why we must be strong in the Lord. You may be a courageous person in yourself. You may be a wimp in yourself. Either way, we find strength in the Lord. And God's power is made perfect, is demonstrated through our weakness. So there's no excuse to not be involved because our strength is his strength. I was reading the biography of of a famous soul winner, a man that was known for witnessing multiple times a day and leading many people to the Lord and making disciples. Dawson Trotman, the founder of The Navigators, a great disciple maker. And I I found it remarkable that he said every time before he shared the gospel, he got afraid. He experienced some fear and he would pray a quick prayer and lean on the Lord. And he shared the gospel multiple times a day for decades. 
The fact that you may be timid, the fact that you may not be a public person, the fact that it may not be your style, that's really not the issue. And, and I've been following the Lord now over 48 years. He has not yet asked me for my opinion. He's not said, how do you feel about this? He didn't tell Peter, now we have several options. We have the famous preacher option, we have the crucified upside down option. Which do you prefer? No, we're called to be his servants. And Jesus said, if you love father and mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love your own life more than me, you're not worthy of me. When we're in India and we do water baptisms every year, my friend, as he does the water baptisms, this is at baptism. He asks the believers after their confession of faith, are you willing to follow Jesus to your last breath, to your last drop of blood at baptism? I have a friend that, that works in the Muslim world in the Middle East, and he said, as, as Muslims come to faith, before they baptize them, they ask them two questions. Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? Are you willing to die for Jesus? And if they don't say yes to both, they don't baptize them. He said, imagine what would, that would do with our church membership. Okay, so you want to become a member of our church? Great. What is it that drew you here? Well, pastor, he's great. I mean, he's a great communicator, and he's funny, and children's program is great, and the parking is really convenient. Great, great. Okay, good. And you agree with us, doctor? Oh, yeah, yeah, we're with you on all that. Okay, we just have two more questions <laughs> before you become a member. Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? Are you willing to die for Jesus? But that's normal gospel. See, the American gospel is basically, this is who I am, this is how I feel, and God is here to please me. And the biblical gospel is this is who God is, this is how he feels, and we are here to please him. Amen. When we, when we start with that orientation and mindset, then the question is, okay, how can I make a difference? And see, that's the whole thing. Right here, we have a diverse group. We have young and old. We have people married and single. We, we have parents, we have grandparents. We have folks that are in the business world, folks that are in the political world, folks that homeschool their kids, folks that are in media, a diverse group of people. And this is where we're each placed to each make a difference where we are. You can be 15 and making a difference on social media. And in fact, you could just sit down and chat with someone. The next thing your video is viewed 10 million times. You never know. You could be the one in the workplace by standing up for righteousness that it ends up being a cause celeb and it goes to the Supreme Court and you had no clue. You were just standing on your convictions. You don't know the influence that you have as, as a mom in your community, as someone in the business place. You, you have no clue the, the role you can play and each of us does our part. It's that simple. Each of us does our part. You have to understand the battles that we're in today are not battles that any of us asked to be in. It's not a matter of the Illinois Family Institute thought, you know, we've got nothing to do and life is kind of boring. Let's see what kind of trouble we could stir up. And you have to understand from my perspective, coming to faith as a Jewish believer in Jesus, so there's controversy from day one over that. So I've been reaching out to my Jewish people ever since, almost 50 years now of Jewish outreach and dialogue and debate, but there's, there's never a dull moment with that. And then traveling overseas, traveling to the nations, that's been something I've done for years, and then wanting to see the church in America revived and stirred. So I've been on the front lines of lots of things with lots of controversy and debate and dialogue across the body. There's not a dull second in my life. Just search for me online. I mean, there are a lot of Michael Browns, but when you get the right Michael Brown, you'll find I'm one of the most loved and one of the most hated people out there. <laughs> I mean, there's no neutral opinions out there. Why in the world get involved with gay and lesbian issues? Why me? 
my PhD is in Near Eastern languages and literature. That does not exactly interface with transgender activism. And I, I, don't, I don't have background in terms of having a special ministry or burden for those that identify as, as gay or lesbian. I don't come out of homosexuality. It's not part of my testimony. In 2004, I started to get tremendously burdened because of the activism in our city. We had just moved into North Carolina. I'm from New York originally. We had lived elsewhere, moved into North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina. I thought, hey, conservative part of America, although Charlotte itself is not, but North Carolina, conservative overall. And some of our friends, I was in England, but some of our friends went to share the gospel in the midst of a gay pride event in the local park, Marshall Park, right in the center of the city. And they came back shocked. I mean, you had lesbian cops holding hands, walking through the park, and if you were there wearing a Jesus t-shirt or carrying a Bible, you were escorted out. I'm not talking about intimidating people, harassing people, just walking through, sharing the gospel. You were escorted out. And you know, you talk about the drag queens and this and that. Well, friends took pictures. Here's a drag queen, a guy in a tutu, you know, a little ballet outfit, skimpy outfit, and he's dancing and gyrating in front of little children. Toddlers are coming, putting money in his, in his panties. I think, what in, the, what in the world, what world did we wake up and how is this happening? One tent, they had porn in it, gay porn, and little kids could just walk in. And, and the folks took pictures of kids walking in and it, it, was, it was absolutely shocking. And suddenly I started to get burdened. I started to look around at what was happening in our city. And I saw that we had two large banks, the two biggest banks in America based there. Wells Fargo then and Bank of America. And they're battling back and forth to show which is more gay friendly. It, it was remarkable. And the Charlotte Observer, the newspaper pitching in and, and others pitching in and, and then finding out what was happening in the schools. One of the young ladies in our school of ministry was teaching in a preschool. So this is, you know, 12, 13 years ago, teaching in a preschool, and, and she came and said to me, Dr. Brown, I'm not allowed to call the kids boys or girls. That would be making a gender distinction. I have to refer to them as friends. And she said, I'm required to read books like Heather has two mommies for the reading, so she, she wouldn't do it. She ended up having to leave the job. I became tremendously burdened about what was happening with the activism. I knew to have God's heart though, I needed to, to care about people as well. When my generation hears the word homosexuality, we think an issue, one pastor pointed this out. When the younger generation hears it, they think a person. And we're dealing with people and we're dealing with issues, both and. So I began to, to read everything I could written by gay activists and gay theologians, professing gay Christians, just to try to understand their stories and have more empathy for their situation because I couldn't relate to it personally. I'd make appointments with local gay activists and say, hey, we live in the same city. We're, we have very, very different views and we're both very open about our views. I wanna know your story. I wanna know how I can be your neighbor here in the city with our differences. And, and I met, talked and read and, until my heart broke for the people. And God gave me a clear word, reach out to the people with compassion, resist the agenda with courage, reach out and re resist, reach out to the people with compassion, resist the agenda with courage. In other words, hearts of compassion, backbones of steel. And now suddenly I'm, I'm in the front lines of this. I'm doing stuff for Focus on the Family. I'm doing interviews on, on queer channel radio and, and being on TV and addressing all these things. And the question is, why me? I remember when I was about to go on Tyra Banks' show where they were gonna have all these transgender children coming out and, and they wanted me on as, as an expert to talk about our side and I said, okay, I'm, I'm happy to come on your show. But you understand, my, my doctorate is in Semitic languages. I, I'm, not, my, I'm not a medical doctor, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a psychologist, psychiatrist. I, I don't have any academic credentials. I mean, I've written a lot and researched a lot in these areas. I said, but 
I just want you to know who I am, what my background is. No, no, you're the right person. I, I was asking the Lord, Lord, why me? Well, I understand I'm called to controversy. I understand I'm a debater. I understand all these things. I have a, have a heart for gospel-based moral and cultural revolution. Yeah, that, that's me. That, that all works. That's true. But why this area? And then I began to realize this is one that nobody gets to sit out. In other words, this is all hands on deck. We don't get to sit this one out. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said the ultimate test of a moral society is the kind of world that it leads to its children. The question is, what kind of world are we leaving to our children? If they turn around to us and say, what happened to the liberties you used to enjoy? What happened to using the Bible freely and preaching, teaching freely? Listen, just over lunch, I was talking with a, a medical doctor talking about things going on in Canada. It, it's beyond outrageous in terms of what's happening there. I, I met face to face with a man. I, I'd addressed the issue and people said, he's here. He's here in the meeting in Canada. I met with this man face to face. He has a 14-year-old daughter. He and his wife separated. 14-year-old daughter, so they're having a conflict over raising her. 14 years old, and she now identifies as a boy. And she wanted to get hormone therapy and all of this, so the father opposed it. So it became a court case. Not only did the court rule against the father and says that she has the rights at 14 to begin to get hormone therapy, but the court ruled that if this father, in the privacy of his home, refers to his daughter by her female name or refers to her as she, he will be instantly arrested. We have had children against the parents' wishes here in America. This has happened now. We follow the cases. Children against the parents' wishes now going through same-sex change surgery. And this, uh, I'm talking about a minor still that is preparing for this and now in grandparents' custody because the grandparents affirmed it. We have friends in another country and the, the daughter grew up with our daughters. We've known her all her life pretty much. She contacted me, Dr. Brown, I don't know what to do. My 15-year-old daughter, she's mildly autistic. She suddenly came out and said that she identifies as a boy and, and we're not sure how to handle it. It's just out of the blue. She's in this new school and we think the school is influencing her in this way. So I gave her counsel that I could. I referred her to websites and sources that would help sort this out, what, what people are recalling to, referring to as rapid onset gender dysphoria, where suddenly kids around a certain age will suddenly start to identify out of the blue as the opposite sex. And, and it's often children with, with various autistic conditions and they're, you know, they're, they're all kinds of related issues, but this is happening on wider and wider scales and wider and wider numbers. So she made an appointment to meet with folks at her school. To her shock, she and her husband, to their shock. This was in Israel, actually, this happened. In the Israeli schools and Israeli society, if you're outside the orthodox circles, it's very, very liberal. She found out that the next day, they had no knowledge of this. The next day, the school was planning on announcing that this girl is now a guy and should be used, you know, male pronouns and male name without telling the parents. And the girl had already received counsel. Hear me. The girl had already received counsel that if she was having a problem and her parents were not accepting this, that she would be removed from the home and put somewhere else. I'm not exaggerating these things. The moment I began to look at these issues and, and study them, I realized back in 2004, 2005, that this was the principal threat to freedom of religion, speech, and conscience in America.
Again, we care for the people. Jesus died for, for homosexual and heterosexual alike. All of us are fallen and fought in need of redemption. We understand that. But there's an aggressive agenda that we must deal with. And if we don't, we're going to have to apologize to our kids and our grandkids. And the reason I got called to be a leader in this, and I've, I've met with government leaders, I, I spoke to congressional leaders and university chancellors in Peru. I've met with government leaders in several different Asian countries, government leaders here in America. Why me? Again, we don't get to sit this one out. Southern Baptist leader, Dr. Al Mohler said, the knock's gonna come at your door. You're gonna have to explain where you stand. Dr. Michael Brown will continue with his remarks at the Illinois Family Institute's 2020 Worldview Conference after this. Evil that's hidden must be exposed. For the Colson Center, I'm John Stone Street with The Point. In new videos released by the Center for Medical Progress, the depths of the depravity of Planned Parenthood toward the unborn are exposed. The videos reveal how Planned Parenthood employees manipulated both paperwork and language to make it appear as if they were complying with federal law when in reality they were in the fetal body parts business all along. These employees described altering abortion techniques to ensure body parts could be acquired and sold. Ultrasound was used to reposition the baby either in utero or partially born for organ extraction. Forceps were used to protect certain organs. This activity was not only illegal and exactly what Planned Parenthood denied before Congress, it violated patients' rights, prioritizing their profits over patients' care. The testimony is gruesome, but it needs to come out. Hidden evil flourishes. Come to breakpoint.org. We'll link you to the videos and then please share them widely. I'm John Stone Street. Thanks for joining Illinois Family Spotlight during this edition. We're highlighting an address by Dr. Michael Brown during the recent Illinois Family Institute 2020 Worldview Conference at the Village Church of Barrington. In this segment, Dr. Brown says during these troubling times, Christians must have backbones of steel as they confront the anti-life LGBT agendas of the radical regressive left. He says Christians cannot sit this one out. I gave a talk from the book of Job. I have a commentary on Job, and I'd, I'd done a talk at a church on a Friday night. A lot of young people and some older people, but from Job, and it was about the, that we have the right to ans- ask hard questions, that God doesn't mind the hard questions. And that was what I was talking about. At the end, we did Q&A, and one question after another after another had to do with gay and lesbian issues. I didn't speak on that. That wasn't my focus. That wasn't the focus of the weekend ministry there but one question after another. I've been invited to a same-sex wedding. Should I go? This is the world that we live in today. We cannot avoid it. One woman comes up to me privately. She said, what do I do? My son is 20, he's been raised in a Christian home, raised in a godly home. He just came out, told me he's gay, and then his sister kind of felt emboldened by him. She now told me she's trans. It's just in a few days. Mom says, what do I do? How do I handle this? Another woman says, what do I do? I teach elementary school. So little children, first, second, third graders. She said, I teach elementary school, and our school is really, really strict on transgender activism. And they insist that we use the pronouns and we do this and that. And what, what should I do? And then another woman comes up to me. She said, I'm a medical doctor, and I have the same question, because we are required. I mean, think of this. We are required, if the man identifies as a woman, that you're to, you are to put down on their medical form as a woman, even though you treat men differently than you treat women. For example, a biological male will never come in pregnant. 
So here this literally happens. A man comes in who identifies as a woman and is written in the records as a woman and they're treating him for stomach problems before they realize he's having a miscarriage because he's a woman. So, I mean, it's, and strokes affect men differently than affect women. And medication can be different for men and women. So this woman says, it is, it is unsafe for me, it is medically unsafe for me to go along with this activism. What do I do? And I said, look, if it's just an emergency, someone comes in and the only name you have for that person is the female, you know, talk to them a certain way, fine, save their life, but then you got to handle it rightly from there. You know what she said to me? She said, nothing's going to change until all of us on one day decide we're going to stand and if we get fired, we get fired. Now, that was her position. We don't look for trouble. We, we don't look for something so that we can be activists. We are not called to be troublemakers. We're called to be peacemakers. But we know as we follow the Lord in obedience that we will come into conflict. And what we need to do is, in a fresh way, surrender our lives to the Lord. Lord, we belong to you. I remember when I started addressing these issues that one of my friends with the Alliance Defending Freedom, leading Christian attorney, said, Mike, have you thought this through? Because we rented the, the Booth Playhouse in Charlotte for five days of lectures on homosexuality, the church, and society. We didn't realize when we were renting this place, the Blumenthal Performing Arts Center, that it was known as Gay Central in Charlotte. We weren't aware of that when we rented it. But immediately, because we rented it for the lectures, there was total controversy in the news, local news media all over it, and the newspaper all over it, and editorials back and forth, and, and they allowed me to get my voice out and things. And my friend said to me, Mike, have you thought about this? You know, you, you got in every group, in, in every religion and every group, and you know, you, you got people that are wackos and that are crazy that are gonna do, and he said, you know, have you considered what might happen? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, have you considered that there, someone might try to hurt you? I said, I don't follow. He said, Mike, if you thought through, there might be violence against you. I said, I don't get it. He said, you could be attacked. I said, when I got saved, I gave my life to the Lord, it's not mine, it doesn't belong to me. <laughs> Jesus said, Jesus said, Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. In other words, this is, this is Jesus giving a word of encouragement. It's like, hey, don't worry about people. The worst they can do is kill you. <laughs> but you see, we have a different perspective. And yeah, it can be costly to lose a job or lose a promotion. It can be costly to be cast out. It can be costly to suffer rejection. These are realities, but we have to say we are the Lord's servants. We are here to make a difference. And I want to present something to you. When I came to faith in 71, the best-selling book was Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth. Many of you remember that. Of course, there's the saying, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there, but that's another subject. Yeah, it takes a little while, then the ripple comes through, and then the kids are like, Dad, what does that mean? I'll explain that later. But the big book, How Lindsay's Late Great Planet Earth, and, and we knew Jesus is coming any moment. And you see, when I came to faith, my best friend started going to this little gospel preaching church. We were all doing drugs, playing in the band together, and little by little by little, they started to be drawn in, and then God saved them, changed them. I went to pull them out, and God had mercy on me and turned me around. But the church taught a lot in, in those days when my friends were going, the pastor was teaching out of the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation. And, and my friends would come home, literally, they'd come home from church, but they weren't saved yet. And we'd be sitting around getting high together, you know, using pot or LSD or something. And they're saying, yeah, Mike, there's 
Come a beast, 10 heads, seven heads and 10 horns coming out of a bottomless pit. And we're like, that's in the Bible. That's cool, man. We, I mean, that's, that was our perspective. But then now we get saved and now it's all this end time stuff. Was, we were hearing about it all the time and, and Jesus is coming in and all the prophecies have lined up. And, and so we knew it soon. So look, I was 16 then. Our, our oldest granddaughter is 19 years old in college. Trust me, at that point, we weren't thinking that way. Nancy and I are about to celebrate 44 years of marriage. We weren't thinking about any of this. Praise God. But, but many Christians saved in this environment in America have this mentality, Jesus coming any minute and everything's gonna get worse until he comes. It's only gonna get worse and worse and worse, in which case you have the mentality of why bother? Why bother to do anything when it's only getting worse? Now, can you imagine if the church through history had that mentality? The, the early church never would have rescued babies that, that were abandoned and given over to die. We never would have opposed slavery. There, there'd be no progress. William Carey in India would not have brought about moral reform there through the gospel, or John Wesley in, in England. We just say it's all getting worse. Think of that. And, and the other thing that we can see is that the one guarantee for every generation up to now is that they've died. I'd love to see Jesus return in my lifetime, but I turn 65 soon, even though I'm in vibrant health and strength, there's a time limit on all of us. And what we do know is that we're gonna be handing the baton to the next generation and the generation after. So forget about eschatology and are you pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill, are you dispensational, pre-trip, forget any of that. Just ask the simple question. The world's been handed to us a certain way. What kind of world are we handing to the next generation? Just think of it in those terms. And, and remember, in this world, there's always gonna be sin, there's always gonna be corruption until Jesus returns. We understand that. The, the perfect kingdom comes when he establishes it on the earth. We understand that. But the question is, what difference are we making here and now? Are we functioning as salt? Are we functioning as light? Are we making a difference? Are we exposing sin? Are we exposing unrighteousness? It's part of who we are, part of our calling. Look, look in Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs 31. It's, it's right before the the passage extolling godly women, those amazing verses. But look at what's written there in Proverbs 31, verses eight and nine. Proverbs 31, eight and nine. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and needy. If we just look at the issue of, of abortion and, and, and the monstrous toll that it's taken in our society in, in so, so many ways. I've had callers call into my radio show, women who had abortions 30 years ago, and they break down sobbing as they talk about it. One woman called in, she said, I'm a Christian, and I work in Planned Parenthood. And some of my friends say, well, it's okay because you're not involved in abortion itself, but I, I'm conflicted. At that point, she was a single mom. It was a, it was a lucrative job. She needed it to, to, to cover her expenses. And she asked, you know, is it okay for me to do it? And I told her plainly, I said, you will never go back to that job if you want to honor the Lord. You cannot. And laid it out plainly. And, and then she began to open up and talk to me. And she broke down sobbing. She said, you know, they brought me in the back one day. She said, they call it the POC, the products of conception. She says, oh, babies, those are parts of babies. She's sobbing on the radio. And, and we were able to make contact with her. She, she never went back to Planned Parenthood. Folks stood around her, helped her financially during the transition. And now she's out and proud with her testimony of a changed life and married, in fact, 
with their child being raised, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Look in Proverbs chapter 24. I know it's easy to, to judge the people that didn't act and speak during the Holocaust, but I can't, can't imagine the fear. If you speak, that's it, you're dead. Or, or maybe tortured to death. Or maybe your family tortured to death. I, I can't imagine how intimidating that fear would have been. And the courage it took to be like a Corey Ten Boom and, and those that rescued Jewish lives and the lives of others. And you know, we, we say, boy, you know, how could Christians be involved in slavery and slave trade? It was part of the culture, it was the norm. It, it was a horrific, inexcusable blind spot, but they grew up with it, it was part of their life. And, and when the Christians opposed it, they, were, they suffered for it, people were beaten for it. People lost everything for it. But how do we look back at those who are on the wrong side of slavery? We don't make any excuses for them. We say it's reprehensible, it's inexcusable. The same way here we are, these things are happening on our watch, and I don't say this to lay guilt on us, but to say we have a sacred opportunity to make a difference. We are God's voice in this world. Proverbs 24, verse 10, if you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? And then look at what follows. Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? Nevers Mumba, Zambian Christian leader, said, I believe we've come to a place where the thinking of Christians, he was specifically addressing charismatics, but we'll say Christians as a whole, must change. And it must change now or the church will become a little cult in the corner. He said, I'm not interested in following a religion that does not impact the world in which we live. Jesus was a rebel, meaning going against the tide of the world. And he's called us to join this movement and change the world together. Francis Schaeffer, Christian Manifesto. As we turn to the evangelical leadership of this country in the last decades, unhappily, we must come to the conclusion that often it has not been much help. It has shown the mark of a platonic, over-spiritualized Christianity all too often. Spirituality to the evangelical leadership often has not included the lordship of Christ over the whole spectrum of life. Spirituality has often been shut up to a very narrow area, and also very often among many evangelicals, including many evangelical leaders, it seems that the final end is to protect their own projects. I'm again asking the question, why have we let ourselves go so far down the road? And then Georgie Failing said this, and he wrote this in the days when communism was spreading around the globe, often at great sacrifice. He said, we Christians have given Calvary to the communists. They accept deprivation and death to spread their gospel, while we Christians reject any gospel that does not major on healing and happiness. And it was Brother Andrew who said, our Lord said, go. He said nothing about coming back. He said, there are no closed doors to the gospel, provided that once you go through, you don't care if you come back out. So here we are with a great opportunity to make a difference. If it's right to pray for our leaders to become Christian, then it's right for Christians to run to be leaders. If there's a problem in your school system, maybe you're called to be on the school board. You're certainly called to be involved one way or another. Maybe you're the voice that can make a difference in the place of business. And what's amazing is when one speaks, others speak. When one stands, others stand. Billy Graham said, courage is contagious. So one brave person stands and others will follow suit together. We have an incredible opportunity. Yes, we pray. Yes, we share the gospel and lead people to Jesus. And yes, our calling is to go and make disciples. But the question is, how do disciples live in this sinful, fallen world? How do we live? 
And rather than looking at how horrific and terrible everything is, why not look at the fact that we have an unbelievable opportunity. The harvest is ripe. The darker it is, the greater opportunity for light. And as I said for many years, I'm not so much concerned with the presence of darkness, but with the absence of light. I wanna encourage each of you as I pray and we close to make a fresh commitment in your heart, wherever you are, wherever you live, whatever sphere of influence you have, whether it's a grandparent hanging out with grandkids, whether it's a school teacher, whether, whether you're packing groceries, in the, you, everyone has a sphere of influence. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that you'd give them fresh burden, fresh vision, fresh courage, that everyone would say, Lord, here I am. I wanna make a difference. I wanna be salt. I wanna be light. Use us, Father, to make a great impact and to change this generation for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Dr. Michael Brown, during the recent Illinois Family Institute 2020 Worldview Conference at the Village Church of Barrington. You can connect with his ministry at askdrbrown.org. Please be in prayer during the global pandemic and remember to pray for and support the ongoing work of the Illinois Family Institute, illinoisfamily.org. All donations are tax deductible. Also, tell a friend about Illinois Family Spotlight. Stay safe, and until next time, God bless. Thank you for listening to Illinois Family Spotlight. For more information, please visit us at ifiaction.org and look for us on Facebook and Twitter. If you would like to email us questions or comments, please do so at feedback at ifiaction.org. Until next time, stay engaged and keep your eyes on the prize. 